Mal, do you know what coffee I've been enjoying a lot lately? No, which one? I have been enjoying free lunch coffees, medium dark roast blend. Ooh, me too. You know what I love most about their coffee, besides the rich flavor, is their mission to end hunger for underprivileged children. Each purchase from their store provides 10 meals to children in South Africa. If you want to enjoy this gourmet coffee that is fair trade and certified organic that also fights to end child hunger, go to their website, freelunchcoffee.com. And when you check out, use promo code THOSEOTHERGIRLS10. And let's end world hunger by doing what we do best, starting each morning with a cup of coffee. Can't relate to cancel culture, hookup culture, or victim culture? (laughs) Well, neither could we. We created this platform for those other girls. Girls like us who want to give a different perspective from a Christian and conservative worldview. We talk about life, work, relationships, and everything in between. Let's be those other girls that don't just talk about culture, but change culture and bring back traditional values. Hello, everyone. You are listening to Those Other Girls with Mallory and Friends. I'm Victoria. And I'm Sebastian. And we are changing culture and bringing back traditional values. So as you guys can tell, there's no Mallory today. She is up in Washington, D.C. fighting for unborn babies' lives with, I believe, Students for Life. She's up there for the March for Life events and doing a lot of great things and hopefully you guys are seeing on social media so today I brought on my husband Sebastian this could either go really good or really bad we'll let you know right babe yeah it remains to be seen but you know when there's Victoria and Sebastian on the same show together there's likely going to be trouble ensuing so strap up and uh let's get underway all right. So as you guys remember, Sebastian um, has a very extensive background when it comes to politics. He graduated from Texas A&M and the Bush School of Political Science. He was John Representative John Hardister's policy advisor for a year and a half. Uh, recently, he has spent the last year running for office, came up a few votes shy in a very competitive race, was literally a 50-50 race. And today is the government liaison for the North Carolina Police Benevolence Association. So with all that extensive political background, we're going to talk about politics in this week's weekly recap. You ready, babe? Oh, I'm ready. All right. So President Biden has signed a million and one executive orders since he's been in office. That's not an exaggeration either. No, it's not. I think what is he up to now? Do you know? He's in the mid thirties, so he's you know, within his first few days. It was just my birthday the other day and I turned twenty eight and he has now surpassed me and is in the thirties, uh, with the amount of executive orders he signed. So and that's only within what, a week of being in office. So that's pretty crazy. We've never seen anything like this before. Now, why politically would he be doing this? Well, because what he wants to do via his rhetoric is unify the country and what that would typically mean is you know you work with both sides um 
in the Capitol and both the House and the Senate to get things done, make sure the people's voices are heard. Unfortunately, that is not the case, and he's been signing everything through the pen and uh, not having anyone else's input. It's uh, the Joe Biden show now uh, in D.C. So strap up and get ready for a lot more executive orders coming this next week, too. So can you explain a little bit? Because, like, we have the... In federal government, we have the three branches of government. You have the executive branch, which is Joe Biden. You have the legislative branch, which is the U.S. House and U.S. Senate. And then we have the Supreme Court. Why is Biden able to sign these executive branches without any checks and balances in place? Yeah, so that was never really the intent in my understanding for the founders. Um, So executive orders, you know, have not always traditionally been as powerful as what Joe Biden's making them today. But the presidency has not been capped by the courts as far as executive orders, unless it's hyper, hyper partisan. So I already know that Texas and other states have formally uh, made lawsuits that are heading up the court system right now to really test the power of the presidency. And I'm curious, you know, what we've seen is judicial activism, but now we're seeing presidential activism that's really making monumental decisions that should be left up to the legislative branch. You know, the amnesty, the funding for abortions in other countries, the, um, uh, you know, putting a stop on president, former President Trump's drug um cost reductions. These are monumental things that, in my opinion, should be left up to the legislature. And let's have a national debate and let's talk about these issues. Biden doesn't want that. He wants to, you know, literally shove it down our throats. And I think that's a mistake. And I think it'll hurt him in 22, but we'll see. Yeah, I'm just, I'm really confused on like the legal background. Cause like we've been taught that it's the legislature who makes the bills. But why why is Biden as one person making the bills? Isn't that like the whole concept of why we fought um, in like the Revolutionary War, essentially, was to get away from that one single power government? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, we all know the song from Schoolhouse Rock of I'm Just a Bill and how it goes through the process. Well, um, Joe Biden switching that and saying, I'm just a king and I'm going to sign the executive orders that I want. He's actually taking model from, you know, our governor here in North Carolina, which is scary that he's signing all these executive orders on the federal level and, you, you know, usurping the power of the legislature. But it, it's, a, it's a sad day, but that's what the Democrats campaigned on. And, you know, unfortunately, elections have consequences and we're seeing the consequences very quickly into the Biden administration. I hope and the saving grace is because President Trump uh, um, nominated and the Senate ratified so many constitutionally conservative judges. It's my hope that they will check the president and say this power should be made for the legislature and not the president. It is the legislature's job to pass policy, not the president's. He's supposed to sign policy. And uh, my prayer for the country is that the courts step in and reign in the presidency before it's too late. Now, what was the founding fathers intention when they gave the president executive order power? Yeah, typically it's swift action in times of crisis, and you could make an argument, of course, the pandemic is a time of crisis, but a lot of the uh, the current president's executive orders have nothing to do with the coronavirus, a lot to do with 
high, uh, real political issues, hyper-partisan issues. And what he's really trying to do is appease those on the left that, you know, got him into office. And uh, he's showing that he's not the middle of the road. He's talking, his rhetoric is, I'm a unifier. I want to work with both sides. Unfortunately, his actions are, I'm hyper-partisan. And uh, I don't think that was the founding father's intent. I think the courts will see it that way as well. And they'll reign in the presidency. Yeah. Um, what has been the most shocking executive order he's done so far, in your opinion? For me, it was the cost, uh, the cost of drugs, insulin. Um, you know, no president other than President uh, Donald Trump has decided to fight pharmaceutical companies. He went out there on a limb and uh, said, enough's enough with the cost of insulin. We're going to lower it. We're going to cap you out, and we're going to make it affordable for Americans. I think that was the right thing to do. Now, unfortunately, special interest rules the day. I, I tweeted out that out the other day is special interest is back in control in the White House. And we knew this. We, we told many North Carolinians here and Americans across the country that you know, unfortunately, uh, President Biden will just be a puppet for special interests and the radical left. And as we predicted, that is the case. He is just truly, you know, subservient to those special interest groups that want to raise drug prices and capitalize on hardworking American citizens. And I think that's wrong. Yeah, it's really interesting because his opponent in the primary, Bernie Sanders, was all about lowering drug prices, lowering insulin. And within the first week, Biden's raised prices. And he talks about having, we need to have affordable health care. We need to have Medicare for all. We need to create this affordable health care. But by getting rid of that executive order that President Trump puts in, really, it's, it doesn't make it affordable at all no it does it's cost prohibitive and uh you know you you know um it, it's a shame because the working americans you know through these executive orders in a time of pandemic i was talking to a business owner this morning today about this is president biden has done more to hurt working americans than any other president has done in their administration in just a week the energy and killing the Keystone Pipeline through executive order, 11,000 jobs were cut single-handedly through a stroke of a pen. And you know what his response was to the working Americans that are out of a job during a time of national crisis? What was it? Just go find another job. What kind of leader, what kind of president doesn't understand that we are in a time of pandemic? It is harder now to find a job than ever before. And people are struggling. Let's not add to that. Let's find solutions for that. And I'll tell you the problem. The problem is, um, unfortunately, Biden, since he was my age, has lived in Washington. He's been a U.S. senator since he was 30 years old. He's been a career politician. He's been the vice president of the United States, and now he's president. He just uh, is just not in touch with working Americans. And that's what these executive orders show is a lack of understanding, a lack of empathy, and Working families need a voice in Washington, and it's not going to come from a president, Joe Biden. And I hope that conservatives and Democrats, you know, when he speaks of unity, maybe this is the unity that the president speaks of, is that I hope that Republicans and Democrats stand up and say they're against killing jobs for working Americans and middle class Americans. That's what I hope. I think he's just wanting to try to um, 
unite the Democrat Party again because they have there has been a divide we're seeing where you have like a very far left and the more moderates. And I think he's the legislation he's doing is purely left legislation. It's purely socialistic legislation. It's purely for his own good, his party's own good. He's not thinking about the American people. He's paid off, unlike President Trump was. And it just, it it kills me what he's doing. Like, how can you kill jobs and not even think about it? And you, and he said, he said in the debate that he will not get rid of fracking in the U.S. Kamala Harris tweeted it out in the debate that a president Joe Biden will not kill fracking in the U.S. He did that within his first week. That's right. And it's timestamp. So the, the the great thing about social media, as much as I'm having an issue with big tech right now, is it's literally timestamped where Vice President Harris said a Biden administration will not go against fracking. And then this year after he's sworn in, they're absolutely going after fracking. And these are hardworking um, and good paying jobs for middle class Americans. And to, to go after them it makes no sense to me. I think it hurts our country and it's a shame. And, and all we're doing, all that that does is energy dependence that Joe Biden's advocating for is really making us more reliant and it improves the uh, on foreign countries. And that improves the power of Russia and China. And, and I know former President Trump got bashed for, you know, how he does things with Russia and other countries, but Look at President Biden. He makes us more dependent on foreign countries and strengthens through foreign policy, through his energy policy, foreign countries. That's yeah. what we should, we should be aiming to be energy independent, not yeah. dependent. Yep, yep. And I mean, he's literally bowing down to other countries. He's not putting America first. Um, there's a difference between getting along with our peers and essentially like like bowing down putting our tail between our legs i mean he's giving countries money for abortions he's he's let's see what else did he do he's giving palestinians money and i think he's giving them um weapons and explain to me as how can someone who's jewish vote for biden how can you call president trump anti-semitic when he did some the most like he moved the um u.s embassy to jerusalem jerusalem correct that, that's exactly right the and point- his daughter and son-in-law and grandchildren are jewish but biden's done more to hurt jews in this world than than really any like how can you call president trump anti-semitic when biden's actually the one that's hurting them oh that's exactly right and that's a great point yeah so that was some of the many executive orders um i know mal and i are planning on doing a blog post of the running lies that uh biden's said during the campaign trail that he's gone back on one definitely being the keystone pipeline um and really kind of him being hypocritical. So the na- the next big story of the week is what the heck did GameStop do to Wall Street? Well, that's right. Well, what it really started off with was, you know, a lot of hedge fund managers in Wall Street started betting against GameStop. And what 
what people saw on Reddit was that these billionaires, I don't, I don't know if they're billionaires, but hedge fund managers started betting against GameStop. Their rationale was, look, malls aren't as occupied. People aren't going out as much. So they're going to bet against GameStop. Well, uh, well, folks saw that on Reddit and decided to start buying stock into GameStop, which inevitably increased the value in the market share per share of GameStop. And uh, well, that came under huge speculation because folks in Wall Street were losing millions and millions and maybe billions of dollars while regular folks outside of um, K Street were, you know, making lots of money. And uh, of course, that's going to throw up some red flags for those in Wall Street. So you have um, apps like Robinhood that said enough's enough. We're not going to let ordinary people do stuff like this. And surprisingly enough, you had Senator Ted Cruz and Representative Alexandria Cortez come together, which is very rare because they're on completely different ends of the spectrum, and say that what Robin Hood did to stop the shares um, from being purchased was wrong. And uh, I, I actually agree with both of them. In a free market, they shouldn't be coming in. If anything, it should be controlled by the SEC and others uh, – that control the energy, not just by an app. Yeah. And that's, that's that fine line though. It's like Robinhood's a, it's a private company though. You are able to use them to sell stocks, buy and sell stocks. They still like, where's that fine line? We've talked about this some with social media and kind of what their big tech's doing. Where's that line between them being a public company and the, like the free speech, the, I, you get what I'm saying? No, I get what you're saying. And Chris Como, even though I went after his brother, Governor Como um, today uh, on, on social media, actually did a hard interview on Robin Hood CEO. I advise you to watch the full interview. And he said, and I agree, there's a process. It was not Robin Hood's responsibility to stop the purchase of sales of, um, of stock. It is the SECs, and there's a process that goes in for investigation if there's any wrongdoing that they could stop the price if there's stock manipulation or anything going on while they investigate. It's unprecedented for Robinhood to step in and say, no, their buyers cannot do that. And uh, like I said, I would advise everyone to watch that interview. It's actually a good interview where Chris Como holds Robinhood CEO accountable, I think, I think that that's the right thing to do is go through the process, how it's supposed to be done. Let the SEC do an investigation if there's any wrongdoing, but to to stop ordinary people via an app from purchasing, I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Do you think Robinhood's going to get in trouble because of this? Yeah. Well, there's already been a class action lawsuit that's been filed against the company. Um, I I have no speculation on what the courts are going to do about it, but I would imagine that since there is a process that uh, they might be in a little bit of a trouble. Yeah, I would imagine. So you talked about Governor, or not Governor, well, you brought up Chris Cuomo from CNN. So let's talk a little bit about what Governor Cuomo in New York did this week. This was another big story that came out that he underreported nursing home deaths by 50%, which I find this funny because he received, oh God, what is like movie tv awards is it an emmy he received an emmy for his 
COVID briefs and how everybody praised him and how he was the model child for governors and states on how they handle COVID and how he's like this poster child, but he screwed up and nobody's holding him accountable for it. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And what's even more sickening about the whole situation was the governor wrote a book about leadership during a pandemic. And he tried to make money off of this. And he blatantly lied and underreported the nursing home deaths. I think that is disgusting that he's trying to make money off of a pandemic while people have lost their lives. As Joe Biden says, people go to the kitchen table and there's a chair empty at the dinner table. And all this talk against conservatives that they aren't taking the virus serious. Well, Look how non-serious Governor Como's taken the virus. He writes a book, sells the book where he makes millions and millions of dollars while ordinary families have lost loved ones. and He underreported their deaths. That's just wrong. It's sickening. And Governor Como should be investigated. He should, be, he should have to resign. And he should make a public apology for this wrongdoing. We have to hold our elected officials accountable, especially with stuff like this. This is sickening. Has he made any statement about this? Uh, I, he hasn't made any statement, but it just broke this morning. So I'm sure his team and his lawyers are scrambling to figure out how to respond to this appropriately. What I would advise the governor to do is instead of making the money go to himself, let's let's he should send the money to you know help produce vaccines or something for the virus or to go to mm-hmm. a charitable organization. That's what I would advise the governor to do because this is wrong. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, I mean, if he's doing such a good job with COVID and this COVID response, when did he get time to write a book about it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it takes forever to write a book. It's very long process. Um, yeah, I also thought it was interesting that I think uh, during the debates between Biden and Trump, Biden said 200 deaths is 200 too many but he said we expect to have he did you see this he goes expect to have like 400,000 or 600,000 by the time everybody gets vaccinated and herd immunity happens yeah I I think I saw that scrolling by but just for the listeners of this podcast I want to put this in perspective Governor Como underreported this by between 10 to 15,000 deaths. This wasn't just a mistake like an accounting mistake or a marginal mistake. 10 to 15,000 deaths were underreported by Governor Como. That 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 is not a slight miscalculation. That is him trying to hide it for selling his book and for political purposes. And and to me, he needs to be held accountable for that. What was his reasoning? Do you know, or like how how did this information come out? I guess is my question. Yeah, so the attorney general, his own attorney general, uh, released the uh, information and made that public, and uh, that that's how it became um, became public information. Hmm. Yeah, this is definitely gonna be a story we follow. Um, I mean, this is definitely impeachable offense, correct? Yeah, so I don't know what the impeachment process is in New York. I don't know how all those laws are, but I personally think he should resign and be ashamed of himself. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of governors screwing up, our own governor here in North Carolina, Governor Cooper, has screwed up majorly when it's come to getting the COVID vaccines out. Yeah, absolutely. So here in Guilford County, where Victoria and I live, we had 11,000 appointments scheduled at one of our local hospitals, Cone Health. And uh, these 11,000 appointments shipped back the vaccines. And now there's an uncertain time. Their appointments are delayed until further notice. We don't know. And I've talked to county commissioners that still are uninformed of when these appointments will be made again and when these people will be able to get their vaccine. And just the other day, the governor had a press conference where he said, we've delivered 99.8% of our vaccines. I think that's misleading because if you look at what we've sent back and the people that have gone without their vaccines, it's a staggering amount. Like I said, 11,000 just here in Guilford County. And what we should have done from the onset is allowed private companies like CVS, Walgreens, and what they've done in West Virginia, where they've truly administered 100% of their vaccines to those who are the most vulnerable. We should be taking a model. What, what I did in the legislature working for Representative Harster as a policy advisor, what I wanted to do in the North Carolina State Senate is, look, we should be following states that are achieving success, and we should follow them. Um, and and it, there was a time before the governor made all these executive orders that we were pioneering. People were looking to North Carolina um, for ideas. But now we're having to look under Governor Cooper's leadership what other states are doing correctly and having to try to argue with the governor and twist his arm and say, look, we have to do things better because West Virginia is doing things right. North Carolinians are still vulnerable because of the decisions that Governor Cooper has made. He has no plans for really how to handle the pandemic, whether it's these vaccines or allowing students back to school. There's no plans and there's no communication coming from the governor's office, from the legislature, legislators that I've talked to. And, and that's a shame for North Carolinians. Yeah. So are you saying, so we've already received like 99.8% of our vaccines or is that just kind of the vaccines we have right now, those have been distributed out because I don't think there's enough right now. Like for us, we're the last to get vaccinated. To clarify 99.8% of the vaccines we've received already has been distributed. Okay. Okay. Cause I was like, there's no way we have enough vaccines. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, I know I was my parents live in Forsyth County. My mom said, and I think she said, Navant, you can't get an appointment until May. And Baptist, you can't get an appointment until March or vice versa. But I mean, my dad's only able to get an appointment because he's a high school coach. Has has your parents been able to get an appointment at all in Texas? Do you know? Yeah, so the one who's the most concerning isn't my parents because my parents are still in that younger range. Um, but my grandma was supposed to get her vaccination this past Monday. My mom has still yet to hear if she's received that vaccine. Um, and that's in Texas, but, and, and she's in a nursing home at the moment. So communication's a little hard sometimes. So that remains to be seen, but she was supposed to, she was scheduled to get it on Monday. Okay. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I will. We'll see. I know. I know. It's been it's been an interesting week in North Carolina because what the CDC said that it's safe for kids to go back to school, and then the Biden administration is now trying to say, "Oh no, it's not." I know. I think our, uh, I think Cooper or Mandy Cohen said, "Oh no, we're not going to send kids back." 
even though the science, which they've been preaching to Republicans the whole year, it's the science, it's the science, even though the science says it is safe, they don't want to listen to the science unless it's what they want to do. Yeah, they use that argument as a political tool, as let's follow the science, but then when the science doesn't you know, meet their agenda, then, you know, we start talking about other things and blaming Republicans for X, Y, and Z. But the reality is this is the truth of what should be happening in North Carolina. And I'm proud of my friend, Representative Hardister, for sending this to the governor's office saying we should allow parents to make the decision if they feel it is safe for their child to go back to school and for those parents to get back to work, right? Because if you have young kids, it's hard unless you want to hire a babysitter and then well, even then, like you don't want a stranger coming in your house. And that, and that's the point I was going to make is then you have someone unknown coming into your home. But parents should make the decision if it's safe for their child to go back to school. And they should have that option to send their child to the school. And we should absolutely continue the virtual option in North Carolina of let's let's allow other students to remain home um, that might have vulnerable parents or they might be more vulnerable to it because of pre-existing conditions nonetheless the parent not a politician should have the choice of whether or not their child goes back to school or not and teachers the science has also shown the teachers aren't contracting the virus either yeah um i definitely think that if i think we're going to see a lot of positives that come out of this whole COVID experience that will really show people why you need to vote Republican. Why conservative principles are the best principles? Number one being school choice. I mean, we've seen a skyrocket this year of kids going to charter schools, private schools. And it's just, it's creating a more of a divide when you're not giving parents choices. Yeah, absolutely. So the charter school that I serve on the board of is Next Generation Academy. And we have a lower income population that we you know, look to, and we've provided all of our students with laptops and the ability to work from home to do their schoolwork. And, uh, you know, that that's what our parents individually wanted that, that to be the choice that we made. Other charter schools have gone fully back in person where the students wear masks. And there has, uh, I've talked with these leaders across Guilford County that run the charter schools, and they say that their students have not contacted the virus. There's been no major outbreaks in the school. And mm-hmm. that's what it says too about other states that have allowed students to go back. So I think it's way past time for students to get back to the classroom because there is an underlying, you know, they call it the iceberg effect of where you see all this stuff above water, like the COVID virus and other factors, but underneath the water is mental health issues, social issues that are going on by other students not interacting with other students. And, and, you know, we might not see the true effects of all of this for many, many years. And then we could have major crises on our hand after this COVID virus is resolved. Yeah. So, I mean, students have been out of school for about a year now. What do you, and I mean, it's, it's not, it's obvious, not obvious, but it is a known fact that students are behind, whether you're at the top of the class or the bottom of the class, our students are behind in their learning. What do you think needs to be done to catch up students so they're ready for whether they go to college, trade school, real world? What what kind of I mean, is it where you just hold everybody back a year? And it, it, what do you think needs to be done? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. Um, 
I, I hope educational leaders are looking into that. Um, I, I honestly don't know the answer. What we've been trying to do at our charter school is provide, and, and like you said, some of them are behind and some of them aren't learning at the rate that we're accustomed to them learning. And uh, that's going to be a huge academic issue moving forward is how can we catch these students up? But I think, I think it starts by not kicking the can down the road even further and getting students back into the classroom now, assessing where we're at. I don't think the data is available to make an informed decision on that. We know students are behind, but I don't think we'll know to the extent until we get them back in the classroom with a teacher that can assess that. And once teachers make that assessment, then leaders in the education field, whether that's the House Education or the Senate or LE, um, local education boards, can make those decisions. But the one thing I don't want to see is a widespread policy that one size fits all where we make a uniform decision and students are hurt even worse. I think we need to allow autonomy to local leader, leaders to make those decisions. Yeah. And local yeah, I agree. And speaking of schools, um, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson was made some news this week. Um, yeah, there, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, he is, he is, not a politician and he's finally a you know an elected official with a backbone that is standing up for North Carolinians and I'll let you finish telling them. I'm sorry to interrupt there um, no I mean we love Mark and Yolanda and I know Mal and I've talked about trying to get Yolanda on the podcast um because they just have such like a crazy beautiful story um Mal and I heard Mark Robinson I think it was like two weeks ago the NC right to life rally um but anyway so this week he um as lieutenant governor you and i guess do you want to explain real quick the role of the lieutenant governor and then we'll kind of go into what happened this week yeah, absolutely so the lieutenant governor in north carolina is a unique position they don't have much legislative power even though they are the president of the senate so his role is just to preside over the senate make you know follow robert's rules and recognize representatives who want to speak or to uh you know adjourn the senate but he, he has an obligation to preside over the senate that's one of his roles the other role is he serves on numerous boards one being what we're about to talk about with victoria which is the state board of education he is a member of that board as the lieutenant governor and i'll let victoria continue telling that story but he has a very he has um, multiple hats that the lieutenant governor wears from presiding over the senate to serving in the executive branch as lieutenant governor and then serving on various boards and commissions. Yeah, and so, well, before we get into what happened this week, can you explain why the lieutenant governor in North Carolina has very limited power? Yeah, so the reason why the lieutenant governor has been stripped of their power is, what do you know, partisan gridlock. So what happened was a Republican won the statewide office, and the legislative branch remained under Democrat control. This was when Democrats gerrymandered our state for the past hundred years before Republicans won. Um, and real quick, we haven't had control of the General Assembly until 2010, like ever, correct? That's right. So in 2010, through the leadership of Senator Berger and uh, Speaker Tom Tillis and now Senator Tom Tillis, they worked hard in these districts. They didn't just sue till we were red. They worked hard in the district to make the case that North Carolina was under their going through the wrong uh, leadership approach. And they won in seats that were very hard to win. And, you know, our now speaker, Speaker Moore, won in a seat that was like a D4 um, yeah. when he first won. And, and this is just a testament of, you know, voters listen. 
and voters understand when you're going down the wrong road. But um, to answer and your I, question, and I think it's important to sorry, babe, to say it's like, look, in the last like, how many times has the district's been drawn in the last ten years? Uh, probably four times, I think, four or five times. Yeah, because the Democrats keep suing till they're blue. Republicans won in very blue gerrymandered districts. It wasn't like we sued to kind of get the districts where they're somewhat favorable. No, we went out there. We worked our butts off. We convinced voters, like Sebastian was saying, in order to win. And that worked. Like, we have not been a red state. Of the history of North Carolina, I think we've only been a red state of maybe 1% of the time, you know, 5%, yeah. whatever it is. Like, this has been a Democrat-run state, and there's a reason why people keep voting Republican. And it is not, it's not like we're hyper-partisan gerrymandering either, like the Democrats did 10-plus years ago. Yeah, and, and, and my testament to that is look at our Council of State. It the General Assembly represents the North Carolina. We have two Republican senators. We have a Republican governor, and we have a majority on the Council of no, State. No, we don't have a Republican governor. No, Republican lieutenant governor. Okay, you said governor. Sorry. Um, well, and we have a majority on the Council of State. North Carolina isn't as purple as many people claim it is. There are districts that are purple, but North Carolina is vastly red, and you can attest that to the Council of State races where they win by four points. Um, but getting back to the original question, Victoria, which is what happened? Well, a Republican won the lieutenant governor's race and the legislature still remained under Democrat control. They, they did not want the lieutenant governor assigning committee assignments. They did not want the lieutenant governor dictating legislative um, policy because at that time, the lieutenant governor, nothing passed in North Carolina without it going through the lieutenant governor. Well, the president pro tem then said, well, I want to change that for pure political purposes. Yep. And they stripped the lieutenant governor of all their legislative power and empowered the president pro temp to make all those decisions. And uh, the rest is history, you could say. And that, that that's really the history that happened there and why Mark Robinson does not have the legislative power that past lieutenant governors have had before Dan Forrest, before. When was this? Oh, goodness. I think was it was it like the 80s. I was going to say, I think it was the 80s. So it was before Walter Dalton, Dan Forrest, and Mark Mark Robinson. Yeah. So, all right. So there's y'all's history, North Carolina history lesson. Fast forward to this week. So Mark Robinson had a schedule conflict, and it was done on purpose. So I, what day was it? Was it like Tuesday? Yeah, it was either Tuesday. I think it was... I think it might have been Thursday, this past Thursday. Okay, so he got double booked. So he had to open the Senate, and he had a, I guess technically the school board meeting. Is that right? Yeah, so he had a board of education meeting. Yeah, board of education meeting to discuss new social studies curriculum, which if you live in North Carolina, you know that was like, I would probably say that was his number one issue he campaigned on was we need to make sure our students are learning actual history and not being indoctrinated and what the board of education was voting on this week was essentially implementing the new york times 1619 
curriculum into our social studies curriculum, which has already been proven to be, I think it's a good, like, quote, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it like a good 60% incorrect? Like a good portion of it is not factual. It's a staggering number. And what it does is it's a political agenda to indoctrinate our youth and have them in a polarized political climate that tells them how to think and doesn't let them come to their own conclusions and to read history as it was written in North Carolina and our country. And well, and just to echo the words of our Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, if you go to his Facebook page, you're able to uh, send an email to all the school board members. I think the vote is next week on whether or not to adopt that. I think they moved it and postponed it um, to next week. So our Lieutenant Governor is urging um, North Carolinians to go ahead and reach out to the Board of Education members and encourage them to vote against it. And uh, the last I checked, it had an astonishing amount of likes on it. So I think they're getting blown up. I would encourage all of our listeners on this podcast to reach out to the Board of Education as well and encourage them. Let's teach our students actual history. Yep, I agree. I mean, it's all about we need to be teaching facts, not rhetoric. So our last uh, business, our last uh, story of the week. Um, it's been the one-year anniversary since Kobe Bryant's death. Now, I was never a big NBA fan growing up. I always liked college sports better. Um, you were a huge Kobe fan. I was a huge – I still am a huge Kobe fan. I mean, I grew up in the time of when you ball up a sheet of paper and you throw it at a trash can and say, Kobe. And, yeah. you know, he, he, was, he, he was really an icon of what hard work really meant. And that if you work hard, yeah, he had an insane amount of talent. Of course, his dad was in the NBA and he grew up around NBA facilities, but he still put, even though he had that natural competitive advantage, he still worked harder than anybody else. And, uh, you know, there was a story that an NBA player showed up, I think it was like an hour and a half early to the game. And uh, Kobe was shooting free throws and working on his shots and uh, the player said he worked out for 45 minutes and was exhausted before the game, but he didn't want to look weak in front of Kobe. And uh, at some point, he just had to leave, and uh, Kobe was still shooting shots. And uh player just went back to the locker room to get ready for the game. After the game, he asked Kobe, he said, man, you were there before I left, and you kept working through it. He said, look, man, I was exhausted, but I wasn't going to let you see me stop shooting my basketball until you were done shooting your basketball. And that just shows the hard work. And, and we can all take that to our respective careers of, you know, it's just sometimes about hard work. I know my parents worked hard to get out of their situation. We were born into a low-income situation. You know, my my dad worked 80, 90 hours a week while my um, mom babysit eight to nine kids just to ensure that, um, you know, I had a good quality education and that – that's what's really, you know, important is hard work and taking pride in your craft. And that's what Kobe did. And that's, that's why it was such a loss, you know, for so many people who really looked up to him. And he was just really taking off in the business world, too. He got an Emmy um, from some of his videos. He was successful with videos. And he was really, really looking to make a splash in the business world, too. Definitely a life cut too short. Yeah, not just his. I mean, the girls that died, his daughter, Gianna, I think that's what really got me um, was just, oh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it now. But 
it's just so many lives that were lost way too soon. Um, but our pizza's here. So, babe, do you want to get that all wrap up for everyone else? Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And I just want to really thank Mallory for even though she couldn't be here today on the podcast, she's fighting for the unborn. That really resonates with me and my story. Thank you, Mallory. And thank you for all those who continue to fight for the unborn. They are the voiceless and the most vulnerable in our in our society. And uh, I'm just proud one of the podcasters here, Mallory, could be that voice for the unborn. And thank you all for yep. having me. Yep, Mallory, we're so proud of you. We love you, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Um, Thank you, everybody, for listening to those other girls with Mallory and friends. Rate, review, subscribe on wherever you're listening to podcasts. Like us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Make sure you sign up for our first conference. Yay! We are here, uh, the Conservative Women's Summit. Um, We have merchandise online, get some cute merch, and we look forward to talking to you guys next week. Love you guys, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Those Other Girls with Mallory and Bailey. Make sure you like, comment, and subscribe on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Head over to our website, thoseothergirls.com, to read our blogs and receive exclusive content. And connect with us on Instagram, at thoseothergirlspodcast, and on Twitter, at TOG underscore podcast. Those are the girls changing culture and bringing back traditional values.